This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. beautiful people good morning beautiful people good whatever time of day it is people can you dig it i can so let's get to the nitty-gritty of the unusualness of this episode unusual for a lot of good ways i think so first of all for all my listeners who have been listening to me for a long time thank you for that by the way this podcast is coming out on a tuesday and it's bizarre that my podcast is coming out on a tuesday because my podcast always comes out usually on sunday so every sunday for the past God, it's been, you know, 18, near 18 months now. So the past 18 months, since the start of 2021, this podcast has been coming out every week, on the week, on Sundays. And now this is coming out on Tuesday. Why is that? Well, today, as the title suggests, I have an announcement to make. So I wrote a book, and it is coming out six weeks from today. It is called Value Economics, the Study of Identity. It is coming out, like I said earlier, on June 28th, 2022, exactly six weeks from the drop of this podcast. And this podcast is going to be doing a couple things. It's going to be explaining what the book is about, as well as doing the introduction of the book, the intro before the first chapter, and kind of sharing just the process, the motivation behind the whole reason why I'm doing this whole thing in the first place. So let's kind of tackle those one at a time. So I've always loved books. I've loved writing. I wrote competitively when I was younger. I've read books since I was three years old. And in 2020, at the very start of 2020, I decided to start showing that writing to the world a little bit on my blog, don'treadthisblog.com. I was inspired by a lot of people, most importantly being Mark Manson, the guy who wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and a bunch of other books, and his blog writings really kind of, I hate to use this term because it's so cliche, but it kind of just, it spoke to me in a lot of ways, because I think that the way he went about talking with his audience, the way he wrote, the way he did a bunch of things, I think really is necessary and very missing in a lot of ways in how we view improvement, how we view helping ourselves, how we view viewing what's important in our lives. And I thought it was very, very refreshing. And so I thought that, you know, okay, that's kind of cool. And also it was, a lot of stuff was happening in 2020. A lot of shit was going down. So we had the pandemic, we had the crazy summer of 2020. We had all the stuff going on. We had a lot of political upheaval. We had a lot of things going on. And so I really didn't, therapy never really was a thing for me. I never really got into it, never really did much about, I mean, I went for a couple weeks, but it just wasn't my thing. And I was always better at really kind of getting it out in the way that I felt most comfortable to, which in my way, and I don't think any other ways was writing 20 pages on Google doc and spitting it out and seeing if anyone read or listened to it. So that was what I did. I basically used it as a form of public therapy, a relief valve for my mental health, not really only dealing with what was going on in the world, but just something I was thinking about on the week or whatever have you. 
And so I did this for about six months, starting at the start of 2020, really at the end of 2019, start of 2020, did this for about six months. And I saw some common patterns starting to take hold both in the world at large and in my writings itself. And it kind of just manifested and formed into this one idea, which was the idea of importance, the idea of values, the idea of what makes up a person really. Is it really the things that people were talking about for throughout the, these past three tumultuous years? Is it really based on group identity? Is it really based on sexual orientation or skin color or gender or whatever have you? And I think what's getting lost in all of this and what was kind of the void that I was hoping to fill and the void I hope to fill in this book is that the individual, in my opinion, has been getting lost in a lot of these conversations that we're having that are really, really crucial for the development of a person and individual. And I really wanted to go in and try to fill that gap and really kind of discover the root and the genesis of the problem that was going on. And while doing that, I also saw a lot of other things pop up that I thought were very, very disturbing. Like a lot of people coming out with, you know, quote unquote, self-help motivational seminars or like manifesting, you know, we a good thing to happen to you or weird shit like that. And I thought that was actually the complete opposite of what would solve the problem because my purpose with creating this book and creating a lot of a lot of the stuff that goes along with this book is that how is someone supposed to help themselves if they don't really know who they are in the first place? How are they supposed to do that? And the answer to that question in my opinion is that you can't because if you don't know truly what drives you, what is at the center of your universe, what you center your rock your life on, then you can't help yourself. You'll end up actually hurting yourself in the long run. So I thought these things were both very bizarre, the loss of individualism and the desire to fix problems that may or may not needed to have been fixed by solutions that probably end up don't work, not working anyway, excuse me. So it kind of just started the ball rolling. It started in the summer of 2020 where I had the idea where, you know, hey, this might be a need that the market could use to fill. And in October of 2020, I thought I had enough material and I kind of outlined this, the kind of schema of the book. And I talked about it with very few people. I talked about it with my parents. I talked about it with a couple of close friends of mine. And I said, you know, I want to do this. I want to go out and I want to just put it out there and see what happens. And if I fail, I fail. But if I put it out there and it does well and it helps people, then I think it could be worth it. So I did. And lo and behold, about what is it, two and a half years later, I have a book and it's coming out in six weeks. And so I just want to thank a couple people to the start, you know, start of all this, you know, just kind of before we really get into the content of the material, what we're trying to answer. So first of all, I want to thank my other two people I mentioned first and foremost, my parents, Tim and Chris, who were literally the first two people that I told about this in full detail. And the thing that I always loved about my parents and the thing that I've told people now that, you know, some people have known and now that I want to make public is that my parents never said that I couldn't do anything ever. When I told them that I wanted to go out and I wanted to write a book about a very kind of niche and you know touchy subject as individual values, they never said this is a bad idea. They never said you shouldn't do this. They were like, go for it. Always go for it. See what happens. All this other stuff. So they were very supportive throughout the process. They never pried. They never asked about anything. They never really tried to throw me off course. They never tried to tell me that I couldn't do anything. So Mom and Dad, I love you guys. Thank you very much. That goes to the rest of my family, my brother, my sister, my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, everybody that didn't know about this but is knowing about this now. You guys have always been very, very supportive. That includes my friends. You guys know who you are, everything like that. And second, I want to thank Scribe Media too and a couple people over there. So my book is being published through a company called Scribe Media. It's actually located in my current hometown of Austin, Texas. Uh, shout out to Austin, Texas. 
And how I got in contact with Scribe is actually very interesting because Scribe is actually a unique company in the sense that they are kind of really carving out and revolutionizing book publishing, which I think is very, very cool. So they are a services company that helps people like me who want to publish a book, publish a book without going through all the red tape. So David Goggins published his book through them. That's their biggest client they've had. Tiffany Haddish published her biography or book through them. Nicholas Nassim Taleb published a book through them. A lot of really notable people, a lot of people in the crypto space, a lot of people in, you know, you just look up the list of their authors. It's actually really, really tremendous. So um, a couple people I want to shout out over there at Scribe Media. Um, the first two people obviously are Miles Rote, who is their head of author publishing and content reach out over there. Uh, he was the person who I pitched the book to. He offered me the book deal and I graciously took it. So Miles, you're the man. Thank you very much. Uh, second, Elise Poole for being my publishing manager and kind of correct, connecting me with all the right resources over there. Jordan, Lauren, my marketing managers, uh, Javon McCormick, the CEO of the company. He's a tremendously impactful person. You guys all are. So I really, really am grateful for you guys. I'm 24 years old. I've never written a book in my life. I'm a nobody, as my author biography says. So I really, really appreciate you guys getting a motion about yourselves in order to take a chance on someone who really, really probably wouldn't have gotten a chance anywhere else. So I really, really appreciate it. And I hope this book really does well for you guys. And I think it will. And on that point, the book introduction is being recorded right now. So like I said, the book comes out six weeks from today on July 28th or June 28th, excuse me, of 2022. And I thought I would give you guys the first part of the book. So the first, the introduction, the first part of the book that is really, really going to be the kickoff and the foundation of what the rest of the book is built on. So I worked on this for a long time. I had been working on this and iterating this for probably about a year. Honestly, I would go back and it's funny. I'm thinking of doing, you know, a post on this about how neurotic you get when you start writing a book. You, you start rethinking every single decision you have ever made about your entire life ever. And you're like, Oh my God, like this fifth paragraph and this third page, there's a comma there. I don't know. Should have been there, whatever. So I, I just, I was tweaking out about this for the entire time. So anyway, I think it's I think it's lays does a really good job laying the foundation of the book. Again, I'm not asking you to buy my book or read my content or listen to this podcast. Even turn it off now if you want to. I will never ask you to do anything you don't want to do. But I think after listening to this or reading this, I will be posting this as well on my blog. Don't read this blog.com. That it will give you a good insight if you want to know further about the book and how to develop a system of individual values and how to use those individualized values to interact in the world that will really help your life. I think it could be worth your time. So without further ado, this is the introduction of the book entitled What Came Before, Value Economics, Study of Identity. And to start off, we are going to go with a guest feature. So here we go. All right, how's everybody? Good, good, good. Now as your father probably told you, my name is Matt Foley. And I am a motivational speaker. Now let's get started by letting me give you a little bit of a scenario of what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old. I am divorced. And I live in a van down by the river. Okay, so for those unaware... Those lines were spoken by the funniest man to ever walk the stage of Saturday Night Live, Chris Farley. In his introduction to the funniest sketch that has aired during the show's near 45-year history, Matt Foley, the motivational speaker. And there are three reasons I chose to open with that quote. 
The first reason is that it's fucking hilarious. It's my book. I'll do what I want with it. The second reason is that it's the absolute perfect example of an introduction for any circumstance. Matt Foley shows you exactly who he is in that 36-second carpet bomb of yelling. He doesn't give a single one of his ex-wife shits what you think about it. This is who he is. He is here. He is Matt Foley. And there ain't a damn thing you can do about it. It's a shame we don't do that anymore. We don't want to declare anything. We don't know who we are. Let's expand on that point for a little bit. Each generation has something that I like to call a fatal flaw. Something so obscenely backwards about their version of society that we now condemn it because we know now that it is, indeed, obscenely backwards. Four generations of my family have lived in America, including myself, and I think I have a pretty good idea of what their respective fatal flaws are. For my great-grandfather's generation, it was an, in an intolerance of anyone who simply was not them. My great-grandfather was a straight-off-the-boat Ellis Island Italian. The guy who stamped his papers changed his last name from Lacrucci to Lacrosse because Lacrucci, quote, sounded too Italian. I might change it back depending on how badly people flame this book on the internet. Italians associated with Italians. Germans associated with Germans. Irish associated with Irish. That's how things like the five families of New York and the boroughs of downtown Cleveland, where I'm from, came about. It's why there are Chinatowns in a street where you can find bomb Italian food in almost every major city in America. There wasn't really any crossing those boundaries back then. I think anyone fortunate enough to have living grandparents can attest to that reality. For his sons, my grandpa's generation, the fatal flaw was inter-ethnic intolerance. My grandpa, an Italian, married my grandma, who was Czechoslovakian. My grandpa's dad made his living through manufacturing, my grandma's dad through farming. That really didn't matter much to my grandparents, although it, I assume it sure as shit mattered to my great-grandparents. However, my grandparents' generational intolerance to people with different cultural backgrounds went completely out the window when people who weren't white got involved in the picture, save for the few Mexican workers my grandma's family hired as seasonal farmhands, and take from that what you will. Anybody black, brown, or Asian was automatically in a, quote, don't go there zone. So white people associated with white people, black people associated with black people, Hispanic people associated with Hispanic people, Asian people associated with Asian people, the list goes on. Until the civil rights movement came about, there was hardly any disruption in this system. And even then, a lot of people in my grandparents' generation didn't like the ensuing changes. For my grandpa's son, my dad's generation, the fatal flaw can be seen through the pride movement. Within my parents' generation, there was still some lingering bias from parental influence towards folks of other ethnicities, but it wasn't nearly as prominent as the upheaval caused by the struggle for gay rights in that era. Throw that pot roast to cultural change season with a combination of the AIDS epidemic, Elton John, Freddie Mercury, and Magic Johnson into the oven at 350 for about 20 years, and you're going to have my parent, people in my parents' generation a little spooked. Straight people associated with straight people, gay people associated with gay people, the list goes on. For my dad's son's generation, my generation, Gen Z, the young people today, it is, and that's the thing. The younger generation doesn't have the cognitive functionality to know what the fuck we're getting wrong about society. We can all mostly agree that the preceding generations were right about their fatal flaws. By almost all metrics, by most, not all accounts I should note, we are the most accepting, generous, and tolerant generation that has walked the earth. And frankly, it's not even close. So, what now? What does a warrior do when there is no war to fight? No enemy at the gate? No dragon to slay? The warrior turns inward and find something he doesn't want to see. His own fatal flaw embedded deep within himself. He searches his identity for the answer, then stumbles upon it in all its horror. 
He has none. And that is our generation's fatal flaw. We have no identity. We've been so scarred by both the pains of our past and our own modern society that we refuse to acknowledge what we truly believe. We're too afraid to do so. It might get us in trouble with a friend or relative. It might cause some discomfort at work. It might cause us to fight with our significant other. We've already talked about the sins of our past, but what of the problems in the present? Social media displays a highlight reel of nearly everyone in our generation that can be seen by anyone with an internet connection. It showcases the extremes of human nature, the incredibly breathtaking and the atrociously horrible, in five-minute compilations not unlike the ones we'd find on Pornhub. This has caused us to adopt a paralyzing fear of disconformity. We don't want to seem out of the loop and out of place. We're so afraid of taking a stance that we take no stances. We're so anxious about our choices that we make no choices. We're so petrified by the consequences of our actions that we take no actions. We'd rather be a purposeless ball of bleh. That's more comfortable. That's easier. This might seem odd to some. We're more technologically advanced than ever before. Our healthcare, no matter what you think of the distribution system, is light years ahead of where it was even 10 years ago. We have these things called vaccines now. An astronomically lower number of women die in childbirth. An overwhelming number of children that survive childhood don't die until they're a ripe old age. We're more educated by a long shot. Most of us can read and speak properly. We're less racist, sexist, than any other ist or ism you can ever think of than ever before. And these are all very good things. But paradoxically, we're a lot worse off in a lot of areas. The rates of mental illness, specifically anxiety and depression, and even more specifically for young women and girls, have skyrocketed. We're more doped up than met and medicated than ever before, because we'd rather numb our emotions than feel them. Everybody seems to hate each other all of a sudden. A new calamity drops a nuke on our lives every day via our Facebook feeds. Automation is threatening to take a scythe to the innocent wheat field of truck drivers and call center workers, two of the largest labor pools in America. And despite all of our advances in healthcare, Male life expectancy has gone down. The reason? A perfectly blended cocktail of drug overdoses and suicides. A recent report suggests the overall life expectancy in America has shed more than a year because of the toll of the COVID-19 pandemic. In short, more, people, more and more people are thinking this whole America thing doesn't work for them anymore. Back to the previous generations. We don't want to shit on them too much, just like we don't want to... Sh want our grandchildren to shit on us too much for being purposeless balls of bleh. What did these folks have that we don't? What bonded them together? What created that harmony inside groups before we fucked it all up? Their values. Say what you want about the actions or intentions of the, any of the above communities, but they all had an incredible sense of what was important to them. Most of them still do. The black community is strong when it sticks together, as the Hispanic community and the Jewish community and the Italian community and all the rest. They had a culture, one defined by a set of principles that created a unilateral purpose for them to strive towards together. Tremendous accomplishments have been made because of these principles. Look no further than the aforementioned civil rights and pride movements for proof. But there's one problem. This approach is outdated. Because now, all those barriers are broken down. As we've progressed further into our culture, we've come to accept that identity is malleable. It is not defined solely by a group of any kind, but by rather who we are at the individual level. Group identity, as we've come to discover, is incredibly dangerous when it is the only thing that we can rely on to define who we are. What does it mean to be a black person, a lesbian, a transgender man? 
We know what these identities are by their base definitions, but it is strictly impossible to know what they are in actuality. Because in the end, a group is defined in aggregate by a series of individuals. And the thing that separates the individual from the group is what compromises that specific individual. That cannot be defined by stereotyping it against a group. That is a cheat against individual sovereignty, a robbery of the highest order of the thing we should all hold dearly above all else. Our individuality is sacred, something bestowed upon us to shape what we believe to be true about ourselves by ourselves. Any attempt to weaponize the group to define the individual is not an act of, quote, solidarity or, quote, unity. It is an act of totalitarianism and indoctrination. It is an act that should not be tolerated. While a group of individuals, as above reference, can make miraculous strides to improve the lives of a group as a whole, it serves no purpose at the individual level other than conform the individual to whatever the collective group, most likely a mob, would like that individual to conform to. So what must we do when these barriers are broken down? When those silos have all converged? When we really don't give a shit about shit that didn't mean shit to begin with? We must redefine our own values for our own purposes. We have no identity because we've never been at this point before. For the vast majority of history, we had to deal with the crises of the material. But now, when we have all the material things we could ever want and more, we have to search for something greater. Meaning, the problem is flipped, and we don't know how to adjust. We have no identity because we've neglected looking inward at what, as what we believe as individuals, as opposed to what was opposing the collective. We have no identity because we have finally realized that the hardest war for the warrior to win is the one within himself. We must fight this internal war. We must find our identities. We must be proud of them. We must accept others and be proud of them for fighting the good fight. But to do that, the fight itself must be good. Which leads me to my third reason for starting this book with Matt Foley and his van down by the river. Chris Farley, other than being the funniest person to ever walk the earth, is also one of the most tragic people you'll ever read about. Chris Farley was a good person, a genuine gold soul. He was incredibly generous, kind, and loyal. But Chris Farley had our generation's same fatal flaw. He had no identity. The reason Chris Farley had no identity was because what he thought was his identity was not his identity at all. It was a mirage, one hastily propped up by shitty values. I don't want to put too much blame on Farley, but at the end of the day, he was an adult. He had opportunities and a responsibility to fix his life. He didn't take advantage of, of those opportunities and unfortunately paid the ultimate price for it much sooner than any of us would have liked. The main value that drove Farley was a massive need for outside validation. This was something baked into the Farley family cake and centered around the one person whose validation meant the most, especially for a young boy growing up in the Midwest. His dad. Mr. Farley was an incredibly nice guy. He owned an asphalt contracting company and made good money. The Farleys were not poor by any means, but growing up with three brothers and a sister, Farley had to find a way to stand out. That way was comedy. Farley intensely studied the greats, most notably and ironically, John Belushi of the original Saturday Night Live cast. He became a living caricature, the guy who could make anyone laugh at any scenario at any time, but he eventually left his old personality behind entirely. The, caric the caricature consumed the man. Chris Farley no longer existed. Only his desired projection 
of Chris Farley did. After scraping through college, Farley briefly worked for his father before auditioning with a friend for the Second City, the legendary improv club in Chicago. He was a hit right from the go. When Farley got to the Second City, the manager and owner, Del Close, gave him the mo- both the most important and most devastating piece of advice of his entire life. Quote, Attack the stage like a bull. And attack it he did. Farley's stage presence became something of legend. No one had ever seen anything like it. And I personally don't think we've seen something like it since. He had the incredibly unique ability of getting so amped up for everything that nothing else mattered to the audience but him. He was electric. However, that advice didn't stop at comedy. Farley had already been a shithead like most early 20-year-olds when it came to things like alcohol and weed. He began attacking those like a bull too, and in greater quantities. It wasn't long before he was on cocaine and heroin. His apartment was a consistent mess. He never had to be responsible for anything. His parents were funding his entire living situation from, from back home in Wisconsin. Farley was so unbelievably excellent, so unbelievably fast, that he soon catapulted himself onto Saturday Night Live during one of the show's greatest runs, becoming great friends with legends like David Spade, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, Tim Meadows, Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, and Rob Schneider. Farley was the best out of all of them. They all willingly admit it, too. But there were some issues right off the bat, most notably the Immortals' Chippendale skit, where Farley was forced to dance shirtless next to the lion-haired heartthrob of the 1980s, Patrick Swayze. It was only his fourth sketch while he was on the show. That one act would define him as the fat, funny guy and haunt him for the rest of his days. His friend Chris Rock saw trouble immediately. Quote, Chippendales was a weird sketch. I always hated it. The joke of it is basically, we can't hire you because you're fat. I mean, he's a fat guy, and you're going to ask him to dance with no shirt on. Okay, that's enough. You're going to get that laugh. But when he stops dancing, you have to turn it in his favor. There's no turn there. There was no comedic twist to it. It's just fucking mean. A more mentally together Chris Farley wouldn't have done it, but Chris wanted so much to be liked. That was a weird moment in Chris's life. As funny as the sketch was, and as many accolades as he got for it, it's one of the things that killed him. It really is. Something happened right then. End quote. The bigger the star, the bigger the validation, and the harder Farley went. His addiction soon began to follow him at work. He would regularly show up drunk and stoned. He did hard drugs in the office that he shared with Spade to keep his high. His weight ballooned. He was threatened with termination by Lorne Michaels, the creator of Saturday Night Live, three times. He swore to get his act together. He never did. Farley was in a downward spiral fueled by alcohol, drugs, obesity, and validation. Fatty can only fall down so many times. Finally, on December 18, 1997, after 17 stints in rehab, a couple of hit movies, and a truly valiant effort to kick his demons, Farley fell down for the last time. He overdosed on a speedball of cocaine and morphine while with a $300 per hour call girl in a hotel room in Chicago. After Farley begged for help and passed out, the call girl robbed him of his watch and left him eagle spread on the floor wearing only pajama bottoms. He was 33 years old. But that wasn't the saddest part. According to police testimony from the woman, Farley didn't call her for sexual favors. He called her because he didn't want to do drugs alone, or worse, in front of his friends, where the shame would cast him into darkness once again. He just didn't want to be by himself 
when his own personal darkness inevitably came to claim his soul once again. Chris Farley did not deserve that fate, nor the humiliation that came with it. Yet, that's exactly what he got. You see, you don't get what you deserve. You don't get what you want. You get whatever the fuck the world decides to spit out at you. What you do with that is up to you. The focus of this book will be on the up-to-you part. In order to handle the storms of life, we must reclaim our identities through our values. However, we must use our values wisely. Chris Farley had some great values. He was kind, volunteered at children's hospitals, went to the church every Sunday, and treated people with respect. The problem was that they dominated a sm very small portion of his value pie chart. The bad consumed the good, which ended up consuming him. Therefore, we must fill our value pie chart with, wait for it, good values. But, as the Everwise DMX once said, Talk is cheap, motherfucker! There are many self-help con artists out there who use cheap nonsense like love yourself and treat others the way you want to be treated to make a lot of easy money from emotionally and mentally weak people. But you know what those platitudes are? Weak. They're simply words that anyone with an internet domain can pull out of their ass and throw onto a Microsoft Word document in order to make people, quote, feel better. This book's goal is not to make you feel better. Well, at least not in the way we're used to. If you're looking for a book that will tell you that you're amazing and you just need to find yourself and pull said words out of your ass, put this down and get you and your ass back to the self-help section. We're going into uncharted territory here. And that's where the title of this book comes in. In this day and age, it's not enough to just have values anymore. No, it's about our ability to use them to their greatest effect that will prove the difference. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word value is, quote, relative worth, utility, or importance. The definition for the word economics is, quote, a social science concerned chiefly with description and analysis of the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. And let's face it, the last definition is a bit boring and stiff. Basically, think of economics as how we use our resources, which can be anything depending on the context of the conversation. However, we still have a problem. Seeing as our identity groups are all but disintegrating in front of our very eyes, it is not useful to define individual value hierarchies in the form of group identity. That defeats the whole purpose. Thus, we must create our own values from an individual level while simultaneously making sure that they do not get in the way of anyone else pursuing the same goal. Therefore, I define value economics as this, quote, how well one uses their values and how those values intertwine with other factors in their life in order to navigate life itself without harming or infringing on anyone else's right to do the same. A lot of you are probably about to blow chunks at the very mention of the word economics. I get it. It's not sexy. It's not going to get you a bunch of likes in your photo sharing social media site of your choice. But that's exactly the point. You see... The best things in life are usually mundane. Boring, even. They don't get a lot of attention in the mainstream media or Twitter algorithms. You probably don't feel like your genitals are connected to a lightning rod when you kiss your spouse before you go to catch the subway every single morning. You probably don't feel like Leonardo DiCaprio's Jordan Belfort when you email a spreadsheet to your boss. You probably don't feel like the fake Jordan Belfort's wife, Margot Robbie, when you throw on a little bit of eyeliner and mascara, scarf, scarf down an English muffin coated with non-organic peanut butter, and drop your kids off before work in a used 2017 Honda Civic. But yet, we still do these things. We do these things because they provide a stable source of value in our lives. 
Surprises once in a while can be fun, don't get me wrong. It's fun to go a little wild with your spouse during your, quote, special alone time. It's fun to land a giant-ass sale and high-five Bob from accounting in a three-coffees-deep euphoria of emotion. It's fun to find out your son tripped and impaled his arm on a fork that was sticking upward in the dishwasher 15 minutes after it happened when he calmly walked up to you and pointed at it. My brother did it once. He'll back me up. But these cannot be relied on. These temporary highs are not fulfilling in the long run. Nothing gold can stay. If it could, we'd have cracked the magic code with the cocaine era of the 1980s. we just do a shit ton of blow all the time and our problems would disappear. But blow has bad effects too. You go crazy, you crash your car, you smash mirrors, you do more blow, and then you pass out in a puddle of your own piss. This is not good. We need something real to back up our values. That's why economics is so important. Economics, other than the definition above, has another definition, at least in my world. How many fucking graphs can you draw? The answer? A whole lot. Economics has lasted so long as an academic study because we've realized over time that we can rely on a few of those a whole lot to make sense of that particular field. They have never betrayed us and most likely never will. Anomalies happen just like surprises in our lives, but there are very few and far between. Our values are the same way. We must know how to use our values in the proper way to navigate life. Only then can we even have a slight chance of getting what we deserve or want. Gone are the days of abstract statements and well-meaning words. Good riddance. You're a value economist now, baby. Value economics is meant to keep you on track. To qualitatively and quantitatively reassure you whenever you question yourself. To let you know when you're fucking up and how. To help you understand what caused a certain thing to happen and how to make sure it doesn't happen again. To keep a system for doing the most important thing. Deploying your value resources. They are the most precious ones. They cannot be wasted. And hey, if you miraculously end up learning about economics, that's great too. But most importantly, I believe this is the crucial step for reclaiming our identities as individuals. In the Western world, what made us so different from the East we left was that our culture was not focused on groups, but on individuals. Based on great things and thinkers like the ancient Stoics and Enlightenment philosophy, our founders crafted a society in which individual responsibility and values were to reign supreme over the tyrannical collective. And they were right to do so. Because a non-tyrannical collective must start with a non-tyrannical self. The warrior must first master himself before he can assume the responsibility of doing his part in the war. Only when we establish our own identity can we contribute to something greater than that identity. That is the highest virtue. That is what purpose is. That is what identity is. This book is set up in a specific way. The chapters are meant to be read in sequential order and accomplish two things. First, they will serve as an introduction to value economics, showing you how to qualitatively and quantitatively define and implement your own set of personal values. Second, they will show you how to take those defined and implemented values and use them to successfully interact with the world. The steps described in this book must be done in the order in which they are laid out or the system cannot be implemented. The order is essential. One last thing before you dive in. To put you all at ease, let me belt out my own Matt Foley-esque introduction to show you exactly what my identity is. All right, all right, how's everybody? Good, good, good. Now, as nobody on the face of this fucking earth probably told you, 
My name is Sam Lacrosse, and I am a nobody wannabe internet blogger who wanted to try his hand at becoming a nobody wannabe author. Now, let's get started by giving you a little bit of a scenario about what my life is all about. First off, I am a 24 years old recent college grad working an above entry level job. I never had a romantic relationship that's lasted more than eight months, and I got the lowest possible score on my AP economics exam in high school. I want to come clean from the jump. I'm young. I don't have a lot of wisdom about, quote, the way things work around here. I've been paying bills with non-parental money only for a little over 18 months. I haven't been in a long-term relationship or a marriage. I don't have kids. I don't know what it's like to have the responsibility of owning a home or a business. I'm not that smart. I certainly am not that smart when it comes to economics. I'm just a young kid trying to make his way in the world who decided to start off a low-traffic internet blog and then write a book on some of the shitty posts in it. A lot of you are probably skeptical about what I can teach you about anything. Those foundations are warranted. And I accept my lack of life experience for what it is. But I do know but I do know a thing or two about values. I don't think it takes much life experience to know what those are, to be honest. As Forrest Gump once said, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Additionally, in these times of change by the second, I think we need a nuanced approach. Something more agile and nimble to guide us through the turmoil of life. You can't help yourself without knowing what's important to you. My aim with this book is to use the study of value economics to teach you how to find what that important is for you. We'll guide you through life and get you through the darkness. What provides the rock upon which to build your proverbial church? What gives you your identity? If there's one thing that's gotten me through life so far, it's the effective use of my values and learning from the people who taught them to me. I hope this knowledge can provide the same solace to you as it has to me. Let's get started. Awesome! Farley voice. Okay, guys, so that is the introduction to my book, Value Economics, What Came Before. I'm uh, th- That went, went over actually better than I thought it would be, so that was awesome. Um, and it's, like I said, the book is, uh, it's available for really just kind of seeing it now. I had, uh, I've had the cover done for a while. Um, shout out, by the way, I did not forget you, Rebecca Lone, my amazing cover designer, who designed the cover that you and I are seeing on my Instagram, on my LinkedIn, on basically all my social media that's getting shared around all over the place, hopefully by this point. Um, she did a fantastic job on the cover, on the back pa- on the back cover, on the front cover, on everything. So that is what the book is going to look like. That is what you are going to order. If you get a physical copy, it is going to be available in both hardcover and paperback. And additionally, I am starting to begin the process of recording the audiobook sh- shortly, so that will be available on all audiobook buying platforms. And there is an ebook that is also going to be available as well. If you have a, a Kindle or an e-reader or whatever people use these days, that will be available there as well. Again, Value Economics, The Study of Identity, coming out six weeks from today on all platforms, digital, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Not going to be available in stores. You can order it from the websites online. I will post those links later. You could stream it on an audiobook. You can read it on an ebook. Whichever one you want to do, whatever is your preferred method. It's coming, guys. It's happening. So six weeks from today, uh, first book, Value Economics, Study of Identity, going to be available for purchase everywhere. So I will post that link shortly. Again, check out everything on my LinkedIn, on my social media, my Instagram, everything that's kind of coming along with it. I'll be posting updates throughout these six weeks. There's going to be a lot of exciting stuff happening, a lot of good content coming out around it, everything else. So I think that that's basically it, guys. So it's coming out in six weeks, and I really appreciate your guys' support. And any questions, Sam at don't read this blog.com. I'll still be continuing to podcast, to post, 
every Sunday still on don'treadthisblog.com and don't listen to this podcast. So I'm I'm pumped up, guys. So again, shout out to everyone who supported this process, the very few people who have known about this the entire time before I unveiled it to the world today. And let's go, guys. So that's awesome. Really love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Own the day. Open your mind. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, you tame myself Think about the shit and I think you well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?